The Buffalo History Museum podcast is made possible with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The Pan American Exposition was a World's Fair held in Buffalo between May and November of 1901. Its goal was to celebrate the achievements of the Western Hemisphere and foster better relations between the nations of North, South, and Central America. The fair celebrated industrial, cultural, and technological progress, the centerpiece of which being the large-scale use of electricity used to illuminate its buildings each night. It also featured entertainment along its midway, an area of the fair dedicated to amusements, rides, animals, and other attractions, many of which so distasteful they would outrage 21st century society. One of the most popular attractions of the midway was Jumbo II, a 12-foot-tall Asian elephant said to weigh between seven and nine tons. He was named after the original Jumbo, a giant African elephant owned by P.T. Barnum and who was killed by a train in 1885. On Saturday, November 9, 1901, the exposition's two biggest attractions, Electricity and Jumbo, converged at the Pan Am Stadium when Jumbo's owner, Frank Bostock, aka the Animal King, attempted to electrocute the animal for attacking his handlers. An electrocution gone wrong and a failed publicity stunt. This is the story of Jumbo II. Now, before we get started on Jumbo, let's take a little bit of time and get some background on his owner, Frank Bostock. Bostock, also known as the Animal King, was a circus showman akin to the much more famous P.T. Barnum. Born in England in 1866 to a family of showmen and animal keepers, Bostock put on shows in small circuses all around England and later the world. He even wrote a book called The Training of Wild Animals. His shows mainly consisted of big cats, though he would also perform with other animals, including hyenas, camels, elephants, of course, and even crocodiles. In 1893, Bostock came to the U.S. to set up at Chicago's Columbian Exposition, and there he premiered Frank, his boxing kangaroo, and Wallace, his, quote, untamable man-killing lion. By the time of Buffalo's Pan American Exposition in 1901, Bostock was 35 years old and had as many as five shows performing around the nation simultaneously. Most importantly, however, Bostock was a master promoter, capable of conjuring headlines to interest even the most casual newspaper reader. 
As the Buffalo Courier reported in September of 1901, like all successful showmen, Mr. Bostock has a keen appreciation of the value of newspaper advertising. He spends thousands of dollars annually keeping the merits of his attractions before the public and never loses an opportunity to advertise his shows by novel and surprising means. Throughout the duration of the exposition, newspapers reported daily about Bostock's animal menagerie and the details of his shows, shows which, by the way, brought in thousands of people each day. On dedication day of the fair, May 20th, 1901, the animal show brought in an estimated 30,000 people, including one person with a particular interest in wild animals, Vice President Theodore Roosevelt. McKinley had been scheduled to come to the fair that day, but his wife, Ida, was ill, so he sent T.R. in his place. I'll add that these shows were free, included in the price of admission. According to sources, the most popular time that people visited was around 4.30, which happened to be feeding time for the big cats. Okay, now back to Jumbo, the Animal King's largest attraction, quite literally. According to Bostock, Jumbo was purportedly a famous war elephant formerly known as Rustin Singh, though we should keep in mind Bostock's penchant for promotion and that legend often prints better than fact. Sometime near the 1860s, the animal was gifted to the Duke of Edinburgh by an East Indian prince. During the Abyssinian campaign of 1868, as the story goes, Rustin Singh was one of many elephants deployed by the British Army, hauling artillery to the front. At the Battle of Magdala in April of 1868, he was wounded yet charged on, trampling villagers and helping change the tides of the battle. As reported in the Buffalo Times, quote, as shells flew in all directions, Jumbo trumpeted loudly, keeping the herd together, which would have otherwise stampeded. Her Majesty, Queen Victoria, ordered him to be decorated with the Medal for Distinguished Bravery. Somehow, Bostock was able to purchase the elephant and transport her from England to the U.S. He boasted that when the British found out that the war hero had been sold, they were shocked. He openly bragged about cablegrams he had received from directors of both the London Hippodrome and the Regent Park Zoo, begging to buy Jumbo or at least book him for a lengthy engagement. One headline read, There is a gnashing of teeth in London because the great war animal was sold here. The article goes on to state that the English people are indignant at the sale of the majestic animal. Quote, it should have never been sold, but rather pensioned for life. They even suggested taking up a national subscription to repurchase the animal, essentially a 1901 GoFundMe page. In the summer of 1901, Jumbo II was sent via train to Buffalo for the Pan Am. The train car which carried him rolled into the New York Central Yards at Carroll and Chicago Streets the morning of July 26th. After having traveled by rail and by steamer across the Atlantic, Jumbo was weary and hesitant to move as handlers attempted to transport him from the train to the wagon which would carry him the roughly four miles north to the Pan Am grounds, where he was set to entertain millions, 
over the next several months. As the Buffalo commercial eloquently stated on July 26th, after he was taken from his boxcar, Jumbo was, quote, removed to a ponderous wagon and thence in triumph was borne along crowded streets to the exposition grounds. That, quote, ponderous wagon was pulled north along Main Street by between 30 and 60 draft horses, depending on your news source, where thousands of people stood in awe of the Leviathan. The box or crate which had been constructed to transport Jumbo was sealed save for a small opening in the rear through which his head protruded. The Buffalo Courier published a wonderful photo of the scene. Jumbo was seen in his crate, a seemingly plain wooden box. Hitching a ride are three men. One is standing on the rear of the wagon. One is perched on top smoking, perhaps 20 feet above street level. And the third man is sitting atop the opening in the crate. His hand is on Jumbo's trunk, seemingly calming the elephant. The wagon is being pulled over top streetcar tracks. This apparently interrupted normal streetcar traffic as Jumbo's wagon needed minor repairs throughout the journey. Upon arrival at the Pan Am grounds, just north of Olmsted's picturesque Delaware Park, Jumbo was unloaded into his new pen, staked down and chained. The original plan had called for Jumbo to remain within his crate overnight. However, a recent thunderstorm had frightened him. His handlers were nervous that should the weather once again turn, Jumbo might again lash out. Among the first to see Jumbo on display was a select group of Pan Am officials, including New York State Governor Benjamin O'Dell and the president of the exposition's board of managers, John Milburn. Throughout the fair, Jumbo was a popular attraction, performing his daily shows and attracting thousands of people. Papers billed the elephant as the largest on display anywhere. Actually, they claimed he was the largest animal to have ever been displayed anywhere in the world. To keep the public safe, he was kept in an enormous pen and chained down with 1,200-pound shackles. Each day, his diet was said to consist of nine bales of hay, one sack of boiled rice, 200 pounds of bran, three bushels of oats, two bales of clean oat straw, 200 loaves of bread, carrots, cabbages, and other green vegetables in large quantities. On the morning of Thursday, October 31st, something happened which would greatly affect the way the world thought of Jumbo. The headline in the paper read, Jumbo II nearly kills a keeper. Infuriated elephant savagely attacks Henry Mullen, breaking his ribs and ankle and cutting his head open. Mullen was Jumbo's assistant keeper, and according to the victim, as Henry entered into Jumbo's stall to clean out his bedding from the night before, the elephant wrapped his trunk around him, lifted Mullen into the air, and slammed him down to the floor with terrific force, breaking several bones. Jumbo allegedly then attempted to gore Mullen, but was unable to due to the chains and stakes which restrained him. Jumbo then again lifted Mullen with his trunk and slammed him once more to the floor. The elephant allegedly then tried to stomp on Mullen, but again was restrained by his chains. 
As the paper stated, quote, the untamable and ferocious beast handled Mullen with the same ease that he would use in conveying a peanut into his cavernous jowls. Two of Bostock's workers, James Miller and Edward Barlow, heard Mullen's screams and came running. Using sharp prongs and a club to beat the animal, the workers were able to rescue Mullen, who was immediately taken to the hospital and treated for his serious injuries. A few days later on November 6th, Jumbo attacked and nearly killed a young girl, Tina Caswell, who had attempted to feed him. He struck the girl with his trunk, throwing her against the wall. Again, Caswell's life, like Mullins, was saved only by Jumbo's steel restraints. In the eyes of his owner, Jumbo's deeds could not go unpunished. The war elephant gone rogue was to be put to death, and while numerous methods of execution were considered, including hanging, shooting, and lethal injection, it was ultimately decided that Jumbo would be electrocuted killed by the same means which illuminated the fair's quarter million light bulbs each evening. Bostock hoped that this somewhat more novel use of electricity would attract thousands. Death by electrocution by 1901 was certainly nothing new. In fact, it was a Buffalo dentist, Alfred Southwick, who invented the electric chair in 1881. Southwick believed that the passage of electricity through the human body was a less painful and thus more civilized method by which to carry out capital punishment. After experimenting on hundreds of stray dogs, Southwick and his partner George Fell took part in a government study of execution methods known as the Jerry Commission. In 1887, the commission studied 34 methods of execution to deem which was the most humane. The methods included beheading, burying alive, crucifixion, dismemberment, boiling, burning, drowning, impalement, pressing, hanging, electrocution, of course, and, let's not forget, exposure to wild beasts. In the end, medical experts decided that electrocution as a means of death showed potential. On August 6, 1890 at New York's Auburn State Prison, Buffalo's William Kemmler became the first person to be killed in the electric chair. Kemmler, who had been convicted of killing his lover, Matilda Ziegler, with an axe, was first given 700 volts, which failed to kill him. Then the voltage was increased to 1,030 volts and delivered for two minutes until Kemmler was dead essentially cooked from the inside. Considering our story, we should also mention another notable execution, that of Leon Sholgosh. Sholgosh, a 28-year-old man originally from Michigan, identified with anarchist principles, and on September 6, 1901, he shot President McKinley at the Pan Am's Temple of Music. After first being tackled by a man in the crowd, Sholgosh was jailed and put on trial, a trial that would last only one day. Sholgosh was found guilty and sentenced to death. On October 29, 1901, only seven weeks after killing the president, he, like Kemmler 11 years earlier, was killed in the electric chair at Auburn Prison. To better justify the need for Jumbo's execution, Bostock's press agent, Captain Maitland, stated that the elephant was diseased and that 
illness made him, quote, treacherous and bad. A man is always in danger of his life if he is near him, he went on. If we do not chain him down, he would wreck the entire exposition, and we do not know how to handle or control him. Therefore, he must be killed. Jumbo's death sentence was to be carried out on Saturday, November 9th at 2.30 p.m. in the Pan American Exposition Stadium. The 12,000-seat temporary structure near what today would be the corner of Great Arrow and Delaware Avenue had during the fair been the scene of athletic competitions, cattle judging, bicycle races, and sham battles. Now it was to be the backdrop to an execution, one which was harshly criticized by many in the public. To many others, the execution was a means by which the exposition could recuperate expenses. Tickets were to be sold at 50 cents each, and a special train schedule was even developed and advertised to bring people to the event. For those who were opposed to the killing, the general sentiment was that they simply don't have to come. After consulting with the Humane Society, it was agreed that this manner of death would be the most painless for the animal, so the process moved forward. But although the electrocution was given a green light, animal rights activists continued to protest. The animal may have to die, they argued, but it doesn't have to be in a public spectacle. Buffalonians had, since the 1860s, made it clear where they stood with regard to animal cruelty. In 1867, Mary Elizabeth Lord, daughter of Buffalo's first mayor and wife of a respected religious leader, founded the Buffalo Organization for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the second such institution in the entire nation. In an era where horses pulled trolleys and mules still pulled boats along the Erie Canal, she led an uneasy struggle for the humane treatment of all creatures. Now, in 1901, well after Lord's passing, those who followed in her footsteps took action to protect Jumbo as best they could. Thousands of people purchased tickets to watch Jumbo's demise, though they would never bear witness to his death. Just before 2 p.m. on November 9th, Buffalo Mayor Conrad Deal decided that the execution must be done in private and no crowds would be permitted to attend. Deal telephoned Bostock and asked that, quote, in the name of many society people, the city of Buffalo be spared a reflection upon its dignity. With crowds already gathered inside the stadium, Bostock announced that no one would be allowed to witness the event and postpone the execution until sundown. Papers reported that many in the crowd showed measurable anger at the cancellation. They had paid good money for this, and though they were all granted refunds for their tickets, many remained upset. As darkness began to fall upon the Pan Am grounds, Jumbo was escorted into the stadium by three smaller elephants. Jumbo walked alongside them, seemingly without any hesitation, as though it were midway day all over again. Despite the announcement that the killing would be done in private, some 500 people managed to remain inside the stadium. Jumbo was led onto a hastily built platform to which he was securely tied and electrodes were affixed to his thick hide. 
Those that remained in the stadium certainly expected Jumbo to react violently once the electricity had been applied. But when Bostock signaled for the current to be turned on, little happened. The Buffalo Courier reported that while 2200 volts passed through Jumbo, he was in fact enjoying himself. At one particular instance, he grabbed a large trunk full of dirt and threw it high into the air. He also allegedly pried up a loose wooden floorboard from his platform and threw it. The courier went on, quote, if Jumbo had been invested with the power of laughing, he probably would have. After the failed attempt, Jumbo was led back into his pen, again alongside his smaller elephant counterparts. With regard to the failed execution, electrician Lewis Mills explained, the elephant's hide proved to have the effect of rubber and that it was impossible for the electricity to penetrate it and reach his vitals. He then added, the electricity may not have even gotten to his hide for that matter. It may have gotten grounded somewhere. Regardless of why the experiment failed, Bostock had to address the situation. He declared that his prized elephant would be granted a reprieve and would not again be subjected to electrocution, and added that Jumbo only gets violent in spasms, a far cry from the more fear-inducing statements he had made in papers just days earlier. Given what we know of Bostock and his keen sense of showmanship, one has to wonder if after he was told that he could not make money from ticket sales, he actually intended to kill Jumbo at all. Perhaps the failed electrocution wasn't a failure at all, but rather a plan to protect an investment. I suppose we'll never know. By the time of the electrocution on November 9th, the Pan Am was in its final days. Buildings were soon torn down, some reduced to rubble, and others shipped off as attractions at other fairs. Souvenir hunters ravaged the grounds, claiming bits of buildings to remember the historic event. Souvenirs of the Temple of Music, where President McKinley had been shot two months earlier, were perhaps among the most sought after. Another popular site was the stadium, which wasn't officially torn down until March of the following year. In a perfect, subtle jab, the Buffalo Courier reported on March 26, 1902, quote, Wrecking the stadium was begun yesterday. 100 men were put to work ripping out the floorboards and jerking out the nails of the great structure where, one time, Jumbo II pretended he was going to die, but didn't. Like many of the attractions, Jumbo was also shipped to the next show. Some accounts have Jumbo headed to Charleston to attend the South Carolina Interstate and West Indian Exposition, which ran from December to June. A newspaper ad stated how badly Charleston wanted to see Jumbo, for they called their exposition the Ivory City, a perfect fit for an elephant with gigantic ivory tusks. It also played upon the failed electrocution, claiming Jumbo yearns for more volts of electricity, but newspapers printed in February have Jumbo in Boston performing in Bostock's Animal Arena on Tremont Street. Articles hyping the show mention the elephant's mammoth size and ferocious demeanor, reminding the public that he must remain chained at all times. 
By early summer, Jumbo was without question in Baltimore, performing at the Maryland Industrial Exposition. There, again, Bostock made sure that the ferocity of his animal was known prior to its arrival. An ad in the Baltimore Sun dated June 2nd, 1902 warned, quote, largest elephant in captivity, who withstood 3,000 volts of electricity, man-killing Leviathan, with a record of having taken 50 human lives, is coming and will be exhibited free on the Midway. He was set to arrive at the fair the morning of Wednesday, June 4th, 1902. His arrival, however, was delayed. Upon shipping, railroad companies refused to allow the animal in their cars due to his bad reputation. Kind of a double-edged sword. After some clever maneuvering, he was put into a car which was labeled, quote, a carload of animals. With each new location came the same larger-than-life publicity from Bostock and the same amazement from those who were able to see the giant elephant. On July 28th, the Brooklyn Eagle dedicated a news column to an article called, quote, When Jumbo Sneezed. The article went on to describe the reactions of those within earshot of one of the elephant's sneezes while in Maryland. After his performances in Boston and Baltimore, Jumbo was shipped one final time, this time to Cleveland, where Bostock had his summer quarters. On November 14, 1902, Jumbo's keeper found the elephant dead. He had lived for what was believed to be 45 years and had entertained millions around the world. Now his performances were through. Sometime between his death and the following Monday, thieves had gained access to his body and had sawed off his great three-foot-long ivory tusks. People had found one last way to make money off the majestic Jumbo. The Buffalo History Museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Andrew M. Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is also provided by M&T Bank and from the generous support of our donors, members, and friends. As always, we thank you all so much for listening and encourage you to help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us. Many of you have really done a great job telling your friends, family, and your coworkers about what we're doing and the great stories that we're telling. We'll see you all in two weeks with another great story from Western New York history. So until then, take care. <laughs>